Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Monday, January 2nd, 2023. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast for today. This comes from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Rain likely tonight, icing possible over the far north. This system is still on track to affect our area with mainly rainfall tonight into tomorrow. At this point, much of the area should remain above freezing for this event, with the exception of the northern few rows of counties in eastern Iowa. In this area, freezing rain is possible tonight. Elsewhere, no icing is expected, but some spots may exceed a half inch of rain during the night. As the low-pressure system slowly moves east, occasional rain showers may still occur yet into tomorrow, with a few snow showers on Wednesday. That part may feasibly bring some areas minor snow accumulation. Looking into the extended, temperatures should generally stay into the 30s, with no major systems locally. The front page of the Courier now just has two articles today, and they are Air Raid Sirens Ring in 2023, and we'll begin reading GOP lawmaker Santos should consider resigning. Congressman-elect admitted to lies about background and career. This story comes to us from Hope Yen of the Associated Press. Dateline, Washington. Even as the House GOP leadership keeps silent, a veteran Republican lawmaker said Sunday that George Santos should consider resigning after the congressman-elect from New York admitted to lying about his heritage, education, and professional career. Texas Representative Kevin Brady, a former House Ways and Means chairman who has served in Congress for 25 years, told Fox News Sunday that Santos would have to take some huge steps to regain trust and respect in his district. Santos is set to be sworn in Tuesday when the new Congress begins. Quote, this is troubling in so many ways. Certainly, he's lied repeatedly, said Brady, who is retiring from the House. He certainly is going to have to consider resigning, Brady said. A decision about whether Santos steps down is one to be made between him and the voters who elected him. In November, Santos, 34, was elected in the 3rd Congressional District, which includes some Long Island suburbs and a small part of New York City, borough of Queens. He became the first non-incumbent, openly gay Republican to win a seat to Congress. But weeks after helping Republicans secure their razor-thin House majority, Santos is now under investigation for fabricating large swaths of his biography. His campaign spending is also being scrutinized. He has shown no signs of stepping aside. Last week, Santos was asked on Fox News about the blatant lies and responded that he had made a mistake. The top House Republican, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, who is running to become House Speaker now that the GOP will hold a majority, has not said what action, if any, he might take against Santos. Brady said if he headed a committee that Santos was set to serve on, quote, right now he would not be on the committee, unquote. The congressman also said that, quote, we're a country of second chances, and when people are willing to turn their life around 
and own up to this and do what it takes and earn respect and trust again, you know, we're willing to do that, unquote. Brady said he was hopeful that Santos chooses the right path here. Questions were raised about Santos last month when the New York Times published an investigation into his resume and found a number of major discrepancies. Since then, Santos has admitted to lying about having Jewish ancestry, lying about working for Wall Street banks, and lying about obtaining a college degree. Democrats are expected to pursue several avenues against Santos, including a potential complaint with the Federal Election Commission and introducing a resolution to expel him once he's a sitting member of Congress. Our next article also comes from the Associated Press, and the journalist is Renata Brito, titled Air Raid Sirens Ringing in 2023. And the article begins with a photograph of an emergency worker walking past a heavily damaged building in Kiev, Ukraine. Zelensky addresses nation amid continued missile and drone attacks. Dateline Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainians faced a grim start to 2023 as Sunday brought more Russian missile and drone attacks following a blistering New Year's Eve assault that killed at least three civilians across the country, authorities reported. Air raid sirens sounded in the capital shortly after midnight, followed by a barrage of missiles that interrupted the small celebrations residents held at home due to wartime curfews. Ukrainian officials alleged Moscow was deliberately targeting civilians, along with critical infrastructure, to create a climate of fear and destroy morale during the long winter months. In a video addressed Sunday night, President Vladimir Zelensky praised his citizens' quote, sense of unity, of authenticity, of life itself, unquote. The Russians, he said, will not take away a single year from Ukraine. They will not take away our independence. We will not give them anything, unquote. Ukrainian forces in the air and on the ground shot down 45 Iranian-made explosive drones fired by Russia on Sunday night and before dawn Sunday, Zelensky said. Another strike at noon Sunday in southern Zaporizhia region killed one person, according to the head of the regional military administration, Alexander Starkrow. But Kiev was largely quiet, and people there on New Year's Day savored the snippets of peace. Quote, of course it was hard to celebrate fully, because we understand that our soldiers can't be with their families. Ivanka Shalitsko said while sitting with her husband on a park bench overlooking the city. But a really powerful New Year's Eve speech by Zelensky lifted her spirits and made her proud to be Ukrainian, Solenko said. She recently moved to Kiev after living in Bakhmut and Kharkiv, two cities that have experienced some of the heaviest fighting of the war. Multiple blasts rocked the capital and other areas of Ukraine on Saturday and through the night, wounding dozens. An AP photographer at the scene of an explosion in Kiev saw a woman's body as her husband and son stood nearby. Ukraine's largest university, the Taras, Vensko National University in Kyiv reported significant damage to its buildings and campus. The mayor said two schools 
were damaged, including a kindergarten. The strikes came 36 hours after widespread missile attacks Russia launched Thursday to damage energy infrastructure facilities. Saturday's unusually quick follow-up alarmed Ukrainian officials. Russia has carried out airstrikes on Ukrainian power and water supplies almost weekly since October, increasing the suffering of Ukrainians while its ground forces struggle to hold ground and advance. Nighttime shelling in parts of the southern city of Kherson killed one person and blew out hundreds of windows in the children's hospital, according to Deputy Presidential Chief of Staff Kirillo Tomashenko. Ukrainian forces reclaimed the city in November after Russia's forces withdrew across the Dnieper River, which bisects the Kherson region. When shells hit the children's hospital on Saturday night, surgeons were operating on a 13-year-old boy who was seriously wounded in a nearby village that evening. Kherson governor said the boy was transferred in serious condition to a hospital about 62 miles away in Mykolaiv. Elsewhere, a 22-year-old woman died of wounds from a Saturday rocket attack Saturday in eastern town of Kominsky, the city's mayor said. Instead of New Year's fireworks, Olsenker Dungyan said he and his friends and family in Kiev watched the sparks caused by Ukrainian air defense forces countering Russian attacks. Quote, we already know the sound of rockets. We know the moment they fly. We know the sound of drones. The sound is like the roar of a moped, said Dujin, who was strolling with his family in the park. We hold on the best we can, unquote. While Russia's bombardments have left many Ukrainians without heating and electricity due to damage or controlled blackouts meant to preserve the remaining power supply, Ukraine's state-owned grid operator said Sunday there would be no restrictions on electricity use for the one day. Quote, the power industry is doing everything possible to ensure that New Year's holiday is with light without restrictions, utility company spokesperson said. It said business and industry had cut back to allow the additional electricity for households. Zelensky, in his nightly address, thanked utility workers for helping to keep the lights on during the latest assault. Quote, it is very important how all Ukrainians recharged their inner energy this year's New Year's Eve, he said. In separate tweets Sunday, the Ukrainian leader also reminded the European Union of his country's wish to join the EU. He thanked the Czech Republic and congratulated Sweden, which just exchanged the EU's rotating presidency, for their help in securing progress for Ukraine's bid. Meanwhile, NATO Secretary General Jens Soltenberg said the Western military alliance's 30 members need to ramp up arms production for the coming months, both to maintain their own stockpiles and to help supplying Ukraine with weapons it needs to fend off Russia. The war in Ukraine, now in its 11th month, is consuming an enormous amount of munitions, Sultanberg told BBC Radio 4's The World This Weekend in an interview that aired Sunday. Quote, it's a core responsibility for NATO to ensure that we have the stocks, the supplies, the weapons in place to ensure our own deterrence and defense, but also 
to be able to continue to provide support to Ukraine for the long haul, he said. The next article is from the Associated Press. Singer Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters dies at age 74. The dateline is Beverly Hills, California. Anita Pointer, one of four sibling singers who earned pop success and critical acclaim as the Pointer Sisters, died Saturday at the age of 74, her publicist announced. The Grammy winner passed away while she was with family members, publicist Roger Neal said in a statement. A cause of death was not immediately revealed. Quote, While we are deeply saddened by the loss of Anita, we are comforted in knowing she is now with her daughter Jada and her sisters June and Bonnie and at peace. She was one that kept all of us close and together for so long, her sister Ruth, brothers Aaron and Fritz, and granddaughter Roxy McCain Pointer said in a statement. Anita's only daughter, Jada Pointer, died in 2003. Anita, Ruth, Bonnie, and June Pointer, born the daughters of a minister, grew up singing in their father's church in Oakland, California. The group's 1973 self-titled debut album included the breakout hit, Yes, We Can Can, known for hit songs including I'm So Excited, Slow Hand, Neutron Dance, and Jump For My Love. The singers gained a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1994. The 1983 breakout went triple platinum and garnered two American Music Awards. The group won three Grammy Awards and had 13 U.S. Top 20 hit songs between 1973 and 1985, Neil said. The Pointer Sisters also was the first African-American group to perform on the Grand Old Opry program and the first contemporary act to perform at the San Francisco Opera House, Neil said. Bonnie Pointer left the group in 1977, signing a solo deal with Motown Records, but enjoying only modest success. We were devastated, Anita Pointer said of the departure in 1990. We did a show the night she left, but after that, we just stopped. We thought it wasn't going to work without Bonnie. The group in various lineups included younger family members, continued recording through 1993. June Pointer died of cancer at the age of 52 in the year 2006. Anita Pointer announced Bonnie Pointer's death resulting from cardiac arrest at the age of 69 in 2020. Quote, the Pointer sisters would never have happened had it not been for Bonnie, she said in a statement. Next, we have an article from the Associated Press. Full speed ahead, Avatar sequel again dominates box office. Dateline, New York. Avatar, The Way of Water, is the box office king for a third straight week and shows no sign of slowing down. James Cameron's long-awaited sequel to the first Avatar film brought in an estimated $63 million over the holiday weekend, roughly the same as the previous week, and now has made more than $400 million domestically and more than $1.3 billion globally. Quote, the Way of the Water is already the 15th highest global release ever, just behind the first Black Panther. Numbers released Sunday by Comscore showed Avatar far ahead of runner-up Universal's Shrek spinoff, Puss in Boots, 
The Last Wish, which made an estimated $16 million, and Disney's Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which brought in around $4.8 million. The Sony biopic Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, made $4.2 million in its second week of release. Babylon, the epic of early Hollywood starring Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie, continued to fare badly despite its five Golden Globe nominations. The Paramount release earned just $2.7 million in its second week, a 24% drop and averaged just $815 per location. By comparison, the new Avatar, a 20th Century Studios film, averaged more than $15,000. Now let's turn to the Nation and World page and we'll read the Digest column. Court halts Illinois ban on cash bail. Dateline Springfield, Illinois. The Illinois Supreme Court on Saturday halted provisions of a new law that would eliminate cash bail for criminal defendants, issuing a stay hours before the new policies were set to take effect. The high court said the stay was needed to maintain consistent pretrial procedures throughout Illinois as the court prepares to hear arguments on the matter. The order said the court would coordinate an expedited process for appeal the Illinois Attorney General's Office filed Friday with the Court of Local Judges ruling, which found that eliminating cash bail for criminal defendants is unconstitutional. Democrats, who control the Illinois General Assembly, had pushed for eliminating the posting of a cash bond, a practice long used to ensure that people accused of crimes appear at trial. Opponents of requiring bail contend that it results in the poor and innocent sitting in jail awaiting their day in court, while the wealthy and guilty go free. Next, avalanches kill two in Montana and Colorado. Cook City, Montana. Two people were killed in New Year's Eve avalanches in Montana and Colorado after heavy snow blanketed much of the west. Forecasters with the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center say two snowmobilers from Washington were headed uphill near Daisy Pass, north of Cook City, Montana, when one of them triggered a large slide and was swept about 600 vertical feet. The buried rider, who was covered in five feet of snow, was wearing an avalanche airbag backpack but it wasn't deployed. Both riders, whose names have not been released, had shovels and probes, but neither was wearing an avalanche beacon. Another group of snowmobilers helped search for the missing rider and found his body about an hour later. Also Saturday, a father and his adult son were backcountry skiing near Breckenridge Ski Resort in Colorado when they were caught in an avalanche, according to the Summit County Rescue Group. The father was able to dig himself out, but his son was buried. Now briefly, machete attack. A man wielding a machete attacked three police officers at the New Year's Eve celebration in New York City, authorities said, striking two of them in the head before an officer shot the man in the shoulder. The two injured officers and the suspect were expected to recover. Alabama shooting. One person was killed and nine hurt in a shooting a few blocks away from where thousands were in the streets 
for a New Year's Eve party in downtown Mobile, Alabama, police said. Afghanistan. A bomb exploded near a checkpoint at Kabul's military airport Sunday morning, killing and wounding several people, a Taliban official said. The first deadly blast of 2023 in Afghanistan. No one immediately claimed responsibility for the attack. In Uganda, a stampede during New Year's celebrations at a popular mall in Uganda's capital, Kampala, left at least nine people dead, including children, police said Sunday. The stampede happened at the Freedom City Mall as revelers rushed to watch fireworks. In South Africa, Colombia and Venezuela on Sunday opened a key bridge linking the countries that had been closed for almost seven years amid political tensions, launching an area of improved relations under Colombia's new leftist president. And lastly, in the United Arab Emirates, Dubai ended its 30% tax on alcohol sales in the sheikdom on Sunday and made its required liquor licenses free to obtain, ending a long-standing source of revenue for its ruling family to apparently further boost tourism for the emirate. Next, we have an article written by Darlene Superville of the Associated Press. Biden's New Year pitch focuses on bipartisanship. President Joe Biden and top administration officials will open a new year of divided government by fanning out across the country to talk about how the economy is benefiting from his work with Democrats and Republicans. As part of the pitch, Biden and state Republican leader Mitch McConnell will make a rare joint appearance in McConnell's home state of Kentucky on Wednesday to highlight nearly $1 trillion in infrastructure spending that lawmakers approved on a bipartisan basis in the year 2021. The Democratic president will also be joined by a bipartisan group of elected officials when he visits Kentucky's side of Cincinnati area, including Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear of Kentucky, and Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, the White House said. Biden's bipartisanship blitz was announced two days before Republicans take control of the House from Democrats on Tuesday following GOP gains in the November elections. The shift ends unified political control of Congress by Democrats and complicates Biden's future legislative agenda. Democrats will remain in charge of the Senate. Before he departed Washington for vacation at the end of last year, Biden appealed for less partisanship, saying he hoped everyone will see each other, quote, not as Democrats or Republicans, not as member of Team Red or Team Blue, but as who we really are, fellow Americans. The president's trip appeared tied to recent announcement by Kentucky and Ohio that they will receive more than $1.63 billion in federal grants to help build a new Ohio River Bridge near Cincinnati and improve the existing overload span there, a heavily used freight route linking the Midwest and the South. Congestion at the Brent Science Bridge on Interstate 75 and 71 has for years been a frustrating bottleneck on a key shipping corridor and a symbol of the nation's growing infrastructure needs. Officials say the bridge was built in the 1960s to carry around 
80,000 vehicles a day, but has been double that traffic load on its narrow lanes, leading the Federal Highway Administration to declare it functionally obsolete. Next, we have a story about California's severe weather. Storm closes highways. Northern part of state under evacuation, warning after deluge. Dateline, Sacramento, California. Evacuation warnings were in place in rural northern California on New Year's Day after a powerful storm brought drenching rain or heavy snowfall to much of the state, breaching levees, snarling traffic, and closing major highways. Major flooding occurred in the agricultural areas about 20 miles south of Sacramento, where rivers swelled beyond their banks and inundated dozens of cars along State Highway 99. Emergency crews rescued motorists on New Year's Eve into Sunday morning, and the highway remained closed. Residents of the low-lying communities of Point Pleasant, Glanville Tract, and Franklin Pond near Interstate 5 were told to prepare to leave before the roadways were cut off by rising water and evacuation becomes impossible. Quote, it is expected that the flooding from the Consumas River and the Mokalume River is moving southwest toward I-5 and could reach these areas in the middle of the night, the Sacramento County Office of Emergency Services said on Twitter Sunday afternoon. Livestock in the affected areas should be moved to higher ground, unquote. To the north in the state's capital, crews cleared down trees from roads and sidewalks as at least 33,000 customers were still without power Sunday, down from more than 150,000 a day earlier, according to a Sacramento Municipal Utility District online map. Near Lake Tahoe, dozens of drivers were rescued on New Year's Eve along Interstate 80 after cars spun out in the snow during the blizzard, the California Department of Transportation said. The key route to the mountains from the San Francisco Bay Area reopened early Sunday to passenger vehicles with chains. Quote, the roads are extremely slick, so let's all work together and slow down so we can keep I-80 open, the California Highway Patrol said on Twitter. Several other highways, including State Route 50, also reopened. More than four feet of snow had accumulated in the high Sierra Nevada and the Mammoth Mountain Ski Area said heavy, wet snow would cause major delays in chairlift openings. On Saturday, the resort reported numerous lift closings, citing high winds, low visibility, and ice. A so-called atmospheric river storm pulled in a long and white plume of moisture from the Pacific Ocean. Flooding and rock slides closed portions of roads across the state. Rainfall in downtown San Francisco hit 5.46 inches on New Year's Eve, making it the second wettest day on record behind a November 1994 deluge, the National Weather Service said. Videos on Twitter showed mud-colored water streaming along San Francisco streets and a staircase in Oakland turned into a veritable waterfall by heavy rains. In Southern California, several people were rescued after floodwaters inundated cars in San Bernardino and Orange counties. No major injuries were reported. With the region drying out on New Year's Day, 
and no rainfall expected during Monday's Rose Parade in Pasadena, spectators began staking out their spots for the annual floral spectacle. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 2nd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. This next is a story from the sports page of the Des Moines Register, Iowa Post-Game Mailbag, Music City Bowl Thoughts and Looking Ahead to 2023, Dateline Nashville, a turbulent 2022 season for Iowa football ended at Nissan Stadium, where the Hawkeyes had a chance to finish the year on a high note with a Music City Bowl win over Kentucky. A 7-5 and record in the regular season fell short of preseason expectations, but the program didn't lack for motivation, something that was evident in a 21-0 win over Kentucky. Saturday's contest had a little of everything, an emotional send-off for the senior class, the emergence of new stars, and some history. It was the first shutout in Music City Bowl history. Quote, crazy day, senior tight end Sam Laporta said. Quote, a lot of fond memories were made today. Just great being a part of this program. A lot of great people. Yeah, a lot of fond memories, unquote. For Iowa, it marked a seventh straight season, excluding the 6-2 and two COVID year, of at least eight wins. Since 2015, the Hawkeyes hold a 70-30 and 30 overall record. Quote, I think it's significant, Coach Kurt Farron said. Winning in college football is not easy. It just says a lot about our players. Like I said, these seniors feel an obligation to the program to uphold the standard and that's what the game is all about, unquote. Saturday's win gave Iowa's program a much-needed win and some positive momentum entering what will be a pivotal off-season for the program. Ferens noted after the game that there's a huge leadership void created by the departure of the senior class. Additionally, the coaching staffs will be active transfer portal participants, and there are lingering questions about changes to the offensive staff and schemes. Which brings us to our final Iowa football mailbag of the season. There was plenty to break down from Saturday's game, while leaving some room for speculation about what's ahead in 2023. Iowa got the win in dominating fashion, but let's talk about the offense. As has been the question all season, could Iowa's offense do enough to complement the other two units? For the first time in three seasons, it wasn't Spencer Petrus or Alex Padilla at quarterback, but rather redshirt freshman Joe Labasse in his first career start. The Hawkeyes' total offensive numbers, 206 total yards, 4.3 yards per play, and 7 points. What's the performance evaluation? I think multiple things can be true at once. Let's start with the positives. I really liked that offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz leaned on Labasse's arm in the first plays of the opening series. In the first three plays on offense, where Labasse passed completions to three different targets, Deontay Vines, Laporta, and Luke Latchy, for a combined 37 yards. That opening drive ended on Kentucky's 
33-yard line after a failed fourth-down attempt. I would have preferred to see Iowa attempt a field goal, but I wouldn't fault the aggressive attitude in the house money game. Brian Ferentz took some heat Friday by saying he did the best he could with the offensive pieces this season, but that's exactly what he did on Saturday. With limited receivers available, Ferentz targeted the two tight ends throughout the game. Laporta and Lecce had seven targets apiece and combined for 66% of Labasa's passing yards and his one touchdown. Ferens called a risk-averse game with Labas under center. The majority of his passes were within 10 yards in the air, and once it became clear that Kentucky wasn't a threat to score, Iowa didn't call any plays that would risk a turnover. Overall, fans should look at his 14 for 24, 139, one touchdown, no turnovers performance, and have confidence in his ability as the backup next year. Now for the bad. A lot of the problems that plagued Iowa throughout the season were present on Saturday. To start, the Hawkeye offense didn't convert a third down, 0 for 11, and was 0 for 2 on fourth down, outside of the first drive, which was seven plays. Iowa didn't have an offensive possession with more than three plays until the 9-minute 39 mark in the fourth quarter. The offense was limited with transfer outs and injuries, but not being able to sustain drives was still a major issue. And the extra bowl practices didn't produce much improvement from the offensive line. The guys up front did pass protect better, one sack allowed, but couldn't establish any momentum running the ball. Iowa totaled just 67 rushing yards, averaged just 3.2 yards per rush, and its longest run of the day, a 17-yard gain by Jaslyn Peterson, came in the final moments of the game. He was the team's leading rusher with 23 yards on four carries. The question that looms now revolves around Brian Ferentz's job as offensive coordinator. Was that his final game in that role? I'm leaning toward yes, but either way, Iowa's offense needs a complete overall of its schemes. New pieces are on the way. Will Iowa's offense make the necessary changes to avoid being ranked near the bottom of the nation again? Is Cooper Dijon locked in at quarterback? What's the outlook for next season's secondary? In a masterpiece by Iowa's defense, the three best players, according to pro football focus grades, were in the secondary. Cooper Dijon, 87.8, Xavier Wankpa, 83.5, and Sebastian Castro at 81.4. Dijon, the Music City Bowl MVP, and Wankpa, in his first career start, each had a pick six and finished in the top three in total tackles. They provided a promising snapshot of what next season could hold. Several weeks ago, defensive coordinator Phil Parker was asked about DeJohn's optimal position, to which he said Cash, Iowa's safety linebacker hybrid, but due to injuries this season, DeJohn primarily played quarterback and had an all-Big Ten season, and that's likely where he will stay. The thought of DeJohn, who finished with five interceptions and three pick-sixes, guarding the other team's number one receiver, 
is enticing. Pair that with the return of Jamari Harris, a projected breakout star in 2022, who missed the entire season. And that's as formidable a duo as you'll find in the Big Ten. And Dijon not moving back to Cash is softened by the fact that Castro has emerged as a reliable player. Castro earned a reputation for his tackling ability, but his progression as a pass defender has been an underrated storyline. It was on display Saturday, as Kentucky targeted him throughout the game, but he played pass as well and finished with two pass breakups. Combined with five tackles, it was the most complete game of his career. Quote, they tested him and they went after him, Kurt Ferentz said. I thought he played great. That guy was fast. That guy was covering. He played a lot of snaps all season, but he just keeps improving. He is tough, hard-nosed guy, and he cares and works hard. He was a factor in the game, certainly. In the back end, Wangpa flashed by his superstar potential on Saturday, and free safety Quinn Schulte was so steady that it almost went unnoticed. Both will return next season and figure to take steps forward as each player's confidence grows. Dijon, Harris, Castro, Wankpa, and Schulte, your 2023 starting secondary. That's a group that can be one of the best in the country. Quote, I think we've got a lot of talent in our defensive back room, Dijon said. Quote, I think we played well on Saturday. Obviously, there's always things you can continue to improve on. But the stuff those guys are doing in the games, you see it in practice all the time. They've been making those plays for a while now, and they made the most of it on Saturday. Is it too early to look ahead at what Iowa could look like in 2023? Iowa received some good news in the week leading up to the game when wide receiver Nico Regani, the most experienced player on the team, announced he was returning for a sixth season. The good news continued post-game, with All-American punter Tory Taylor announced that he will return. One reason Taylor opted to stay was a belief in what could be next season. Quote, it's going to be a special year, Taylor said. We've kind of got a young group, obviously bringing in a pretty special quarterback, Michigan transfer Cade McNamara, and a couple of big transfers. I really think this team can go far, and I just really want to be part of it, unquote. As the new year begins, how do we size up the 2023 Iowa Hawkeyes? Let's examine. I thought Kirk Ferentz's remarks about a leadership void was telling. There are so many prominent figures departing, including the team's four captains, Laporta, Jack Campbell, Kayvon Merriweather, and Riley Moss, and potentially more such as Seth Benson, Joe Evans, Noah Shannon, and John Wagoner. Who will step up next and fill those shoes? That's one of the biggest off-season questions. Talent-wise, fans should be ecstatic about the special teams with the return of every starting specialist and returner from this season. Defensively, the linebacker room is hardest hit by departures, but it'll be insulated by a strong defensive line and the good-as-it-gets secondary. Which brings us back to the offense. McNamara is a considerable upgrade at quarterback. His former Michigan teammate and all-Big Ten tight end, Eric, all should pair nicely with Latchy, and Iowa's bringing back its top two running backs 
in Caleb Johnson and LaShawn Williams with an emerging Patterson. But there's considerable work to do on the perimeter, both in development of the current roster and bringing in instant impact players via the transfer portal. The good news is that the schedule is more manageable. In other words, no Michigan, no Ohio State. I believe there's considerable pressure on Iowa's team in 2023. Expectations will be high after a 2021 Big Ten West title and what many feel like was a lost opportunity at the 2022 crown. And the stakes are much higher next season. It's the last year for divisions, so it's likely Iowa's best shot to return to the Big Ten championship game for the foreseeable future. The pieces are in place for 2023 run, but it will be critical off-season from the coaching staff down to the players. In the days to come, Iowa will sift through the transfer portal and wait on current players' NFL draft decisions. Enjoy the postseason win, but know that preparations for 2023 have already begun. Next, we have an opinion piece written by Katie Couric, and it first appeared in the New York Times on December 31st. Barbara Walters didn't take no for an answer. Every female broadcast journalist working today owes a debt of gratitude to the OG Barbara Walters, who died Friday at the age of 93. I know I do. Like many girls growing up in the 1960s and 70s, I wanted to become the next Barbara Walters. I never would have become a co-anchor of the Today Show if it hadn't been for this trailblazer. Because Barbara was the first, she had to draw the blueprint, construct the house, and constantly keep the winds of sexism from knocking it down. Barbara got into the business when plenty of newsmen joked, sort of, about getting the broads out of broadcasting. She fought like hell for everything she got. After working her way up from writer to co-anchor of today, she had to wait for the host, Frank McGee, to ask the first three questions of a studio guest, lest there be any question about who was in charge. When she was named the first female co-anchor of an evening newscast at ABC, she broke yet another glass ceiling. That didn't stop the press from calling her the million-dollar baby for her lucrative contract, nor did it keep her fellow ABC News anchor Harry Reasoner, who reportedly wasn't thrilled about his colleague's presence, from looking as if he were sucking on a lemon when she spoke. Support from her broadcasting brethren was nowhere to be found. But one day, a telegram arrived that said, quote, Don't let the bastards get you down. It was from John Wayne. Not only did she have to constantly prove herself to the network brass, she was also mercilessly parodied, especially on Saturday Night Live, from Gilda Radner's Baba Wawa to Sherry Otari's This is 2020. The comedy bits stung, but they also proved how much of a towering cultural figure she had become. Plenty of people who watched her took issue with her sometimes unctuous style, evidenced by the urban legend that she had asked Catherine Hepburn if she were a tree, what kind of tree would she be? As Barbara once explained to me, that exchange had been hopelessly misconstrued. Ms. Hepburn had described herself as feeling like the very strongest tree in her old age, to which Barbara replied, quote, What kind of tree are you? 
a perfectly appropriate follow-up question, Ms. Hepburn went on to say she preferred to be an oak, not an elm, so she could avoid Dutch elm disease. Barbara did have a knack for asking disarming questions that sometimes made both her subjects and her viewers squirm. At the last minute, she asked Richard Nixon if he were sorry he hadn't burned the Watergate tapes. He said he was. She asked Barbara Streisand, quote, Why didn't you have your nose fixed? And Monica Lewinsky, if Bill Clinton was a sensuous, passionate man, unquote. Barbara was fearless about going there. That's what made her interviews so mesmerizing and ultimately revealing. Like many high-powered women, she was polarizing. God forbid she made current events entertaining. But while Barbara wasn't for everyone, everyone wanted to talk to Barbara. In the days when access to bold-faced names required more than logging onto Instagram, whether it was traveling to Cuba to tussle with Fidel Castro, after which he made her a grilled cheese sandwich, persuading President Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel to sit down together to discuss Mideast peace, tangoing with Al Pacino or walking arm-in-arm with a young actress named Julia Roberts. A conversation with Barbara Walters was an event. When I was competing with her for a big get, I knew I had to gird myself for the battle. I can't count how many times, much to my chagrin, I got word that a sought-after newsmaker was sitting down for an exclusive interview with Barbara. I was crestfallen when Christopher Reeve, the Superman actor, who became quadriplegic after an accident, and his wife Dana, whom I had gotten to know and greatly admired, decided to take part in the primetime special with Barbara on ABC. But when I watched Barbara tell their story, with such compassion and sensitivity, I became too moved and impressed to be disappointed. On more than one occasion, Barbara told me that I reminded her of her younger self. Quote, Neither of us is particularly glamorous, she said. I wasn't quite sure how to take that. During my early days at the Today Show, she was one of my biggest cheerleaders. I once did an impromptu interview with George H.W. Bush, who unexpectedly showed up while Barbara Bush was giving me a live tour of the White House. The next day I received a handwritten note that read, quote, Dear Katie, you were terrific with Mrs. Bush. You knew far more than she did. And nabbing the president was a real coup. You are so darn good. Bravo, Barbara, unquote. I still have it framed in my office. She would later get a kick out of my dating life after meeting John Mulner, my now husband, at several social events before we were married, she told him, well, it looks like you're not going anywhere, so I guess I better get to know you, unquote. Twenty-five years ago, at 68, an age network executives might have thought about putting her out to pasture. Barbara again proved her worth through sheer grit and ingenuity. With, quote, The View, she gave five women of varying ages a platform to share their thoughts on everything from politics to pop culture. Meanwhile, her Barbara Walters specials spotlighted marquee names at a time when celebrities were more exclusive than they are today. Barbara created her own good fortune. I think about the last several years she spent in her home on the Upper East Side, full of framed photos and mementos 
from her extraordinary career. It must have been so hard not to be in the middle of the action. When I was putting together a book of advice from accomplished people in 2011, Barbara's contribution was as follows. Quote, in college, I had a well-known professor whose advice was, follow your bliss, practical application, decide what you really love to do, would do it even if you didn't get paid, but get paid, get a job in that industry or business, start at any level, get there first in the morning, leave last at night, fetch the coffee, follow your bliss, but don't sleep with your boss, you will succeed, unquote. She could have added, don't take no for an answer. Barbara never did. And because of her, the generations of working women in journalism and other fields heard, yes, a lot more often. Thank you, Barbara. We couldn't have done it without you. This next opinion piece is titled, Get Ready to Fight for Our Public Schools. And it's written by Claire Kelsey, who is a state senator representing West Des Moines, Clive, and Windsor Heights, in Polk and Dallas counties. After hearing the news that Governor Kim Reynolds won another term and that the Republicans gained ground in the legislature, my thoughts immediately gravitated to this often uttered phrase, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Reynolds was just announced as the incoming chair of the Republican Governors Association. That means she's in charge of the mean and misguided policies that the group champions and it also means Iowa will become a testing ground for the most egregious policies in the country. If you thought last year was contentious, hold on to your potato chips, friends. This year will be a new experiment in Republican Utopia 101. What are we expecting? Here is a preview. There is a new committee in the House with a curious name, the Education Reform Committee. The committee is being chaired by Speaker Pat Grassley, Expect Reynolds's hand-picked Republicans on this committee, probably to avoid the embarrassing or courageous, depending on your viewpoint, lack of votes for her so-called school choice plans like last season. Governor Reynolds is trying to turn Iowa into a national petri dish for bad education ideas, a bill to move taxpayer money from public to private schools, curriculum mandates, and book bans might be only the beginning. Reynolds has been promoted by other private education guru, Corey DeAngelis. He is a self-styled private education advocate, but follows in the footsteps of such people as Betsy DeVos, who are determined to tear apart public education and replace it with a cobbled-together system of private and charter schools with no accountability to the public for the tax dollars they covet. These charter and voucher schemes have caused scandalous outcomes in other states, including discrimination, plummeting scores, lack of qualified educators, and outright fraud. DeAngelis bragged on Twitter last year that, quote, Governor Reynolds to become the first governor to sign the Education Freedom Pledge, which outlines her commitment to use public money for private schools. Reynolds is using her office and authority to ingratiate herself to education profiteers, give away our tax dollars to out-of-state corporations. These schemes are rife with fraud in other states that have implemented these arrangements. The school privatization movement is not an Iowa value. Iowans value our public schools 
and the shared responsibility to give every child their birthright, an excellent, free, and accessible public education. By doing this, we are creating an educated populace, our future workforce, and parents of the future. We owe these young Iowans and future Iowans our best effort to provide a modern, historically accurate, and culturally relevant public education for all. Privatizing Iowa schools by funneling money into vouchers and allowing charters to cherry-pick students is not the Iowa way. Instead, Iowans should be working together to protect and improve our schools, not undermine and weaken our valued schools. Specifically, Governor Reynolds and Republicans should be lowering class sizes, ensuring truly universal and statewide free preschool, paying teachers and associates more, appropriating more money to state supplemental aid for every student, expanding supports for low-income students, and expanding funding for English language learning. These are all proven ways to raise test scores, achievement, and grade-level competency. Instead of concentrating on making schools better for the vast majority of our students, Reynolds is planning to funnel public money to private schools. This is not what Iowans want. Next is an editorial from the Des Moines Register's editorial board. Stamp out means testing for food pantry customers. Nobody comes out a winner in the dizzying disputes among Metro Food Assistance agencies. There is no singular mustache-twirling villain in the drama playing out among agencies in Iowa dedicating to feeding hungry people. But the disputes illuminate how often people in need must leap over unnecessary obstacles. The system set up to collect unused food from businesses, purchase staples in bulk, and make the food widely available are complex. It's not as simple as saying, give people food. But that's all the more reason not to tack on loads of paperwork for proving the eligibility of those who need something to eat. The hunger agencies should lead the charge for making food available to all Iowans who ask for it without means testing. Means tests are a fact of life and social services in numerous forms. Republicans in the Iowa legislature have toyed in recent years with tightening rules for demonstrating need for a variety of programs, including Medicaid and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And, yes, nobody is excited for scarce resources, supported by scarce tax revenue, to be used up by fraudsters who could easily afford basic needs but dip into what's meant for starving people. But why couldn't the state that's number two nationally in agriculture receipts be more generous with food, of all things? In the evolving story in central Iowa, the explanations offered by the parties so far do not completely answer the question. The Food Bank of Iowa and various pantries and public agencies have parted ways in recent weeks, with the partnering entities mostly saying they could not agree to changes in contract terms from the Food Bank of Iowa. One change requires pantries to provide at least a three-day supply of food to every client in their service areas. That was a problem for pantries affiliated with the Des Moines Area Religious Council, which has 14 pantries with many overlapping service areas in the metro area, meaning a person could conceivably 
visit and take food from all of them. Another development saw the food bank contract with Come and Go to take all of the convenience store chain's discarded food before Eat Greater Des Moines collected uneaten food and distributed it to food banks and pantries. Michelle Book, the food bank CEO, told the Register that there was a fundamental difference between the missions of her group and Eat Greater Des Moines, specifically over whether to take steps to ensure that clients are truly poor. Such attention to qualifications is not only about identifying the neediest, it's also about taxes. Retailers are eligible for generous tax reductions. Shouldn't our focus instead be on getting people fed? And now, listeners, that's going to do it for our reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 2nd, 2023. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Mm-hmm.